Hello and welcome to Everyone Special and No One Is, a podcast about obscure, misunderstood, and or controversial topics related to music. My name is Martin, and we are popping in this week with a special bonus episode, a follow-up to part two of We Are the 99%. And I'm here with my amazing brother, Mitchell Chazelle. Welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm excited that we got to do this. I know uh, we were going to try to do this a little bit earlier, but your work schedule at the hospital was insane. So thank you for having the time to do it now. Yeah, of course. I'm happy it worked out. Yeah, so we're trying to dive a little bit further into one of the studies that I mentioned in part two of We Are the 99%, which talked about basically researchers at McGill University put people that had no prior musical background into taking cello lessons, and they stuck them in an MRI machine to take brain images um, at the beginning of training and at the end of training in order to tell how their brains changed. Do you think that's a topic that you can help bring a better <laughs> understanding to? I'll, I'll do my best from what I know. Yeah, because what was your, your major in college? I majored in neuroscience and microbiology, so I feel like I know a little bit about these topics, but we'll see. Yes, and how many of studies such as this did you have to read in your classes, roughly? <laughs> I don't know. Too many. Too many. We did a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, amazing. Uh, yeah. So, Because when I was reading this, doing the research for this episode, I definitely felt like I was in over my head. But the main thing that I want to know from your perspective with your knowledge of neuroscience, looking at this neuroscience study, is what does this say about potential predispositions to being good at music because they took people that had never played music before, but is it possible that reading this study that we'll find that, okay, certain people's brains are just naturally better at music than other people's brains, or did the study not show that? So what I'd like to do is to just work through only the abstract of the study. Um, we're not going to get super in the weeds of all the all the rest of the stuff, but I think there's good stuff to cover just in the abstract. Um, can you very briefly define what an abstract is? Um, yeah, for sure. An abstract is generally kind of just the brief overview, the summary of why, why we care about this paper, how they found their results, the, mes- the methods they used, and then what their results showed at the end of their study and their conclusions. Yes, perfect. Um, okay, so I'm just going to read through it and then we'll take frequent breaks for you to like translate the technical language into like terms that hopefully anyone can understand. Um, so the abstract, again, the study is called Neural Network Retuning and Neural Predictors of Learning Success Associated with Cello Training by Indiana Woolman et al. Anyway, um, just to give credit where credit's due. So the abstract says, 
The auditory and motor neural systems are closely intertwined, enabling people to carry out tasks such as playing a musical instrument whose mapping between action and sound is extremely sophisticated. So, Mitchell, what are the auditory and motor neural systems? Um, kind of just what it sounds like. You got a big chunk of your brain that's focused towards all your auditory functions, whether it's listening or anything like that. And then another big chunk of your brain that's uh, used for all your actions, all your motor systems used in your body. So like if I'm playing the piano, my hands moving are the, um, that's the motor system and my like listening, that's the auditory system. Yep, yep, exactly. And the interesting part about this is how what you hear when you're playing an instrument affects then how you react to no being right or wrong. Yeah, exactly. Like if you're playing the piano and you play a wrong note, then you could potentially see something light up in your brain in the auditory neural system. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, great. I mean, I use piano as an example, but this this study is primarily focused on cello playing because um, you can't fit a piano inside of an MRI machine. <laughs> um, anyway, okay, so I think we got through the first sentence. Um, the second part of the abstract, the next sentence is, while the dorsal auditory stream has been shown to mediate those audio motor transformations, little is known about how such mapping emerges with training. So a lot to unpack there. What is, um, in very general terms, what is a dorsal auditory stream? Uh, that's just going to be the one of the pathways from the auditory cortex. And using the word dorsal just kind of shows where it's located in the brain. Yeah, so it's just like the location in the brain where like auditory signals are being processed, kind of. Yeah, kind of like where where those signals are being sent from the auditory cortex to another place. That's kind of the auditory stream. Right. So and it's saying so that stream, that movement, uh, it says has been shown to mediate these audio motor transformations, but little is known about how such mapping emerges with training. So mapping is just how the the neurons are connected to each other? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. They tend to use that word a ton, just if just like a normal map, kinda just the layout of neurons in your brain. Right. So basically what it's saying is while we do know about how the auditory system in the brain and the motor system in the brain, we do know that they're connected and signals get sent back and forth. What we don't know, what the study is trying to do, is to show how those connections change as a result of giving people music lessons. Yep, yep, exactly. Okay, great. Um, the next part of the abstract says, here we use longitudinal training on a cello as a model for brain plasticity during the acquisition of specific complex skills, including continuous and many-to-one audio-motor mapping, and we investigate individual differences in learning. Can you say that in layman speak? <laughs> Um, so pretty much in this study, they're just 
taking subjects over a long time period and seeing how their brain changes from the start of the study to the end of the study using a few different methods. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, so it goes on, says, We trained participants with no musical background to play on a specifically designed MRI-compatible cello and scan them before and after one week and four weeks of training. Activation of the auditory-to-motor dorsal cortical stream Okay, I'm going to stop right there. Um, <laughs> so the sentence that I just read about how they did the study, I kind of covered that pretty heavily in the previous podcast episode, um, just with how they made a cello and how they fit that into the MRI machine and how they scanned it. But then the part that I had to stop because I was getting overwhelmed, um, activation of the auditory to motor dorsal cortical stream. That's just like the pathway in the brain, basically. Nothing too fancy. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Okay, okay, great. Um, activation of the auditory to motor dorsal cortical stream emerged rapidly during the training and was similarly activated during passive listening and shallow performance of trained melodies. Okay, what is that? So... What they're the point they're trying to get across here is pretty much that they they do see they do see an increase in the activation between these two different parts of the brain as these new musicians are being trained and over the time period of four weeks they can see a development in the the pathway between these two uh, zones of the brain and then after that. It's similar to the pathway that activates in trained musicians' brains when they're listening to music. So, long story short, they're they're looking at these brain images and they're seeing, oh, there was activity from the auditory system to the motor system, um, and that activity emerged through training. Yep. Okay, great. Um, so, it goes on... This network activation was independent of performance accuracy and therefore appears to be a prerequisite of music playing. Yeah, so here they're just saying that whether or not someone's playing uh, the right or wrong notes, they're going to see this pathway develop. Yeah, so it's like this shows up just... Like, in order to play music, this part of your brain has to be activated, and it doesn't matter if you're good or bad, like, this pathway is still going to show up in your brain. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, and then it says, in contrast, greater recruitment of regions involved in auditory encoding and motor control over the training was related to better musical proficiency. Yeah, so this section of the abstract makes it sound like from their results, when you see greater activation in these regions of the brain, in the auditory and motor regions, that can be associated with a better performance, more accuracy in the notes. Right, so what is greater recoupment of regions involved so how is that different from what we just talked about right before that just the the network that was activated regardless of how good they were playing 
So the sentence prior is saying that whether when when we see this network active, there someone is playing music. If someone is going to be playing music, they need this network. Whereas in after that, they say when there's greater activation in these areas, when there's greater recruitment of the regions in the auditory and motor cortex, uh, we see that the person is able to play music better. Okay, got it. So it's like, no matter what, if you're playing music, this part of your brain will light up, but it'll light up brighter and in more areas if you're doing a better job. Yep, that's what I believe they're saying here. Okay, cool. Um, And then it goes on. Additionally, pre-supplementary motor area activity and its connectivity with the auditory cortex during passive listening before training was predictive of final training success, revealing the integrative function of this network in auditory motor information processing. That That is a lot to take in, but I think what that's saying um, in that this this brain activity was predictive of final training success. Um, is that to say that yes, it's possible, or, or it, their study shows evidence that some brains are naturally wired to be better at music because of the way these systems are interacting? Yeah, so it sounds like in there, before they begin practicing, if they saw an increase in an increased connectivity between these two regions of the brain, it was more likely that the trainee would be able to perform better. Uh, whether that's because a greater connectivity developed in their childhood because of some music they were listening to, or because of some reason they were raised, it's kind of unclear. But it is cool that all these all of these subjects had no prior music experience would show that these pathways kind of just more naturally developed than were trained previously. Right. So it still doesn't fundamentally solve the nature versus nurture argument because, I mean, you're working with adults, presumably, who are capable of learning an instrument. And at the stage when you're an adult, like you've had all this life experience so far, so it could be that just coincidentally you've been doing other things that have strengthened your like your auditory part of your brain and the motor part of your brain. Um, but whether it's genetics or nurture or both, like it's clear that some people, for whatever reason, are predisposed. Their brains are wired, regardless of why they're wired that way there is a certain amount of brain wiring that makes you predisposed to be better or worse at music at, at learning music. Yeah. And there, there could be some things that these subjects did beforehand, like music, like dancing, for example, where they're already used to kind of picking apart rhythms and, um, expecting a cue or something like that, that already kind of developed this motor to auditory pathway. But before, they started practicing the cello in this experiment. It did appear that there was something in the brain that we could see that predisposed them to have a better, that they would be better after practicing. Got it. 
Okay, that's extremely fascinating to me. Thank you so much for helping clarify on that. Uh, we're, we're, we're at the very end of the abstract, and then it just says, Together, these results clarify the critical role of the dorsal stream and its interaction with auditory areas in complex audio-motor learning, which, after all that we've talked about, I think that just means that, okay, so this stream, this movement of brain activity from one area to the other, um, it's just saying that this is important in complex skills such as learning to play the cello. Yeah, pretty much. Okay, great. Amazing. We got through the whole abstract. Thank you so much. Um, I think that's really, really good to to look at because like honestly like not having a neuroscience background and for me not even being familiar reading studies like this it's just like it's like reading another language basically so to have you be able to just break it down bit by bit by bit like I'm a child <laughs> is very um helpful there were quickly before we end this there there were two other things that I briefly wanted to touch on one, um, I know, Mitchell, we were talking about this shortly before recording. Um, there is a graph showing how performers did, like, pitch accuracy and timing accuracy. And there is this, like, shaded gray area on the graph. And when I was recording my first podcast, I took that little shaded gray area to mean, okay, there's no outliers. Like, everyone's more or less doing the same. But actually, while it's maybe a little bit unclear. The shaded gray area is probably just a standard deviation, which doesn't necessarily mean that there were no outliers. Like there could have been situations where people were in the study were doing way better than other people or way, way worse. But in their data that they're showing in the survey, like they're not going to give us all the fine tuned measurements from all of the participants, but it is still possible that there could have been outliers, which was incorrect in my initial assessment that there were no outliers. I believe so, based on my interpretation of this graph. Um, it seems like that's more of a, yeah, like you were saying, um, a standard deviation of their data in that grouping of the shaded gray. Yeah, so that's just like, what, approximately 68% of the data shows um, in the center I, I I took statistics in seventh grade math. I know a little bit. I it's uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, great. So, and then the only other thing um, that I mentioned in the in the previous podcast was that I made the comment. Okay, there's only thirteen participants in this study, which is like really hard to make any broad conclusions about like people in general because that feels like a small sample size to me. But when we were talking earlier before recording, it sounded like that's not necessarily the case either. Um, yeah, so it gets kind of tough with some of these studies, especially with how much time it takes to even do 13 participants. So they are kind of limited time-wise. Um, and that's what all this statistical analysis is for. It takes into account how few, uh, how few participants they have. But if there, if there is a great enough correlation and the similarities between the data of all the participants is 
close enough, then they're still able to draw the conclusions. And it looks like, from what I've seen, that all the data was statistically significant enough that they were pretty confident in their conclusions. Yeah, and also the thing that you were saying about this being like a peer-reviewed journal, can you just... Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, so this this article, along with most um, all scientific articles that are released in these major um, uh, on these major websites and uh, journals, they're going to be peer reviewed by at least three, two to three different uh, different reviewers. And if if the study is making baseless baseless claims that's not actually supported by their data, then they then the article won't be allowed to be published. So, um, there has been other scientists that are very knowledgeable in these areas that had looked over this paper to make sure that these weren't baseless claims. Yeah, exactly. And McGill University is like a major reputable institution. So (laughs) I would, I would trust that, um, that they would know what they're doing and, yeah, it's expensive to put people in an MRI machine and to do this study where they receive extremely controlled cello training over four weeks. So I guess it makes sense that they only had 13 participants. But still, the brain scan showed this this pattern, which I think is the main takeaway, like we were talking about earlier. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, Cool. Does this feel like you're back? You're back in class again. <laughs> <laughs> a bit too much. A bit too much. Are you having PTSD from college? <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, well, that's great. Thank you so much for walking through that. I think the moral of the story is that, um, yeah, like it or not, some people's brains are better wired for music potentially. Um, and whether or not you have, whether or not that's nature or nurture, genetics, or the way you were raised is another discussion to be had by a later study. <laughs> yep, yep, sounds about right. Yeah, but but you stopped taking piano lessons, Mitchell. I did, I did, a lot earlier than you. Because you're you're too busy on track to just be a hero saving people's lives. <laughs> I I was in sports at the time. Yeah, I've decided to put a bit more focus into that. Yeah, yeah. Well, cool. Sweet. I think this has been good. Um, we're gonna go have dinner now. Um, and I will see all of you listeners for the final episode before hiatus. So, thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.